Robin Hansen is an economist at George Mason University and an associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. He's the author of The Age of M and the popular blog Overcoming Bias. This is Robin Hansen. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. Cool. Uh, I'm here with uh, Robin Hansen. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Nice to meet you, sir. Uh, so you are a, a prolific writer, thinker, and there's a number of things that I'd, I'd love to talk to you about. Lately, there, there are a couple uh, sort of you know, subjects du jour that I, I want to address or I, wa- I want to hear your yeah. thoughts on. Um, and the first one is UFOs, where uh-huh. you, you've been talking about how on, on your blog, Overcoming Bias, there's this tendency for respected thinkers to sort of push out the signal, even when they're talking about UFOs, that, oh, I just so you know, I don't believe in any of this stuff, but let's entertain the idea. Yeah. Uh, and you've also spoken about in the context of AI, uh, you've suggested that, hey, maybe the sort of panic around it is, uh, is too premature and that we should wait to deal with the, the problems as they present themselves. Yep. UFOs um, seems like a, a distant problem on, on some level because they, we, as far as we know, there are no aliens. I mean, maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. But well, why sure. do you feel the urge to talk about this? Well, first of all, I'm fine with talking about AI. Yes. I, mean, yeah. I, I was an AI researcher for many years. There's lots of interesting things to talk about in AI. Just thinking, hey, AI is interesting to talk about or speculate about or analyze is different than saying, oh my God, AIs are going to kill us all unless we like do this huge research project you know, long in advance before we understand it very much because, hey, there'll only be one chance. And if we don't do it right, right from the beginning, we're all going to die. So fair enough. that's the difference. <laughs> Fair enough. Is, is that that's the framing about AI. And of course, if that were the framing about UFOs, if you were saying, well, we only get one chance to meet the UFOs, and if they don't like us, they'll kill us all, and we better figure out how to meet the UFOs, yeah. uh, then uh, then would ha- you could ha- have a similar sort of crisis, right? Yeah. Thinking, oh my God, we, we have to figure this out. But as far as I know, people haven't been saying, uh, you know, we ha- we're going to have this one chance to meet them, and, and we better do it right. So in that case, it's more just an opportunity you know, is there something interesting there to talk about? Fair enough. Um, and is the reason part of the, like why this is on your radar lately because of those sort of uh, uh, like tic-tac videos that have been well, released? There's, there's two things. I, back in December, I started this grabby aliens project where I was analyzing, uh, you know, the prospects for aliens on very large space and time scales. And uh I thought we had some substantial success there, but then as long as I was writing about aliens, I figured I ought to do a little reading about UFOs as aliens because that's the sort of thing people associate when they hear the word alien, and I figured I should know something about it. So I've done, you know, starting back in December, started doing some more reading about that, and then independently, apparently, the U.S. Congress passed this bill requiring the U.S. government to issue this report, which is supposed to come out in in a few weeks here and therefore people have been talking about that and so there's a happy coincidence a subject that i happen to do some thinking and research on happens to be something in the news and of course you know many people who are intellectuals sort of only ever talk about what's in the news and some of us talk about many other things that are not in the news but hey when something's in the news that is the thing we talk about then there's a happy coincidence you might as well take advantage of that makes total sense. And, and one of the points that you sort of brought up or suggested is that perhaps, and we can talk about what the word artificial means, but 
perhaps, uh, you know, if, if we greet aliens on some level, they'll be artificial. Did, um, you, yeah, you... so I, I mean, I'm, I strongly believe that um, basically biological life we, as we know it has a relatively short time left here on earth. Mm. If our descendants continue on the path they're on, they will quickly become artificial and, and artificial things will take over basically the whole world and maybe there'll be a few zoos left. And that's the sort of thing we should expect to happen on alien civilizations too, pretty robustly. And any aliens we would ever meet or see will be millions of years past our level of development here, which makes it almost certain that if, if it's possible to create artificial life, and if artificial life is more competitive, effective than the sort of life we know, then it will all be artificial life. Uh, yes, there and here. The word artificial, some people might have problems with because, I mean, after all, uh, a bird's nest is, are yeah. a form of technology. Well, and, and it just so happens that that bothered me last night. I realized I don't have a very good definition for artificial. And so in the half hour before I started talking to you here, I finished a blog post and just posted it where I said, okay, here's how we can think of what artificial means uh, to be clear about it. And so I'd say, Artificial versus organic is the difference between not self-made and self-made. Hmm. So or, an ordinary, like single-celled, you know, organism on earth, especially if it has asexual reproduction, its child is almost exactly like it. It makes something very much like it. And organisms that produce sexually make things that are like its two parents, but differ in some ways multicellular organisms make a whole bunch of cells which each one is not that much like the stem cell that gives rise to it but the entire organisms are much like the previous organism that gave rise to them and so we can think of humans of course uh, our bodies of course are much like our parents and then with culture though individual behavior is not so much like our individual parents but more like the entire culture we're in mm -hmm. and so uh, basically what things are self-made has been moving to larger scales. Smaller scale things have become more artificial. Like your arm is an artificial mechanism by which your stem cells reproduce themselves. And yes. the, the ch chair you're sitting on is an artificial thing you make, but it's not artificial life because it wouldn't re you know, grow and pass itself on. And so artificial just means you know, things that on a smaller scale are not self-made. Uh, they're part of a larger system that's self-made. And basically the you know, pr progress of history has been to larger units that are self-made such that smaller units are no longer self-made. And mm -hmm. individual organisms like ourselves have a limited future because things like ourselves will be not self, you know, we will, our descendants will not be self-making themselves. We are basically, instead of, you know, making a baby in a womb, you'd be making creature robots in factories. And that's a more efficient way to make things. And so the making of things will be through this larger integrated economic system. And that's how we expect our future to go. And that's how we expect aliens futures to go. And that's what I would mean by artificial is basically at a local smaller level, things are not self-made. They're instead made by larger systems coordinating to make them. You know, we dig up stuff in mines, we make stuff in factories, you distribute them through transportation routes and things end up places doing things, but they didn't make themselves. They didn't make something very much like themselves. Uh, Interesting. 
that's it, and that that does kind of resolve the the question mark there of of what of how we define artificial because a lot of people just say artificial is anything made by humans. But of course, if you're going to call aliens artificial, that, that definitely right. lies out the window. No, right, right. So you're definitely going to need something. You want to say like, what is the analog to humans somewhere else? Yeah. But that when the other humans make something, it's artificial, and then you want to say, well, you know, what is it? What's the essence of being human? And here I'd say the essence is that a larger culture and economy, each one of us don't self-make ourselves as much. We make ourselves together through this larger unit. Uh, but of course, that would that put in like gopher holes and uh, ant farms and bird's nests within the category of artificial because it's not self-made? Sure, but they're just not artificial life. Yes, yeah. Right, a, a beaver's dam is an artificial construction the beaver makes. And... Uh, it's outside its body even, of course. Um, if you chew on your fingernails and make them sharp, well, now you're making your fingers more artificial in that sense. I see. And of course, we're, we're, we're crossing over into the Age of M territory, which is a, a great uh, book that you wrote. Um, and for people who are not familiar with it, could, could you first offer like a definition of M, what an M is just to frame this discussion? Yeah, of course. So... M is short for emulation, short for brain emulation. And it's a route to artificial intelligence that may well be the first route by which we get human level artificial intelligence in our civilization. And so a brain emulation is where you take a particular human brain, maybe yours, and we scan it in fine spatial and chemical detail. We see which kinds of cells are where connected to what. And then we have computer models of how each kind of brain cell works in terms of taking input signals, changing internal state and output signals. And if you have a good enough scan of the brain, knowing which kind of cells are where, and you have good enough models of how each kind of cell works, then you can put that together into an entire model of the whole brain, which would then have the same input output behavior as that original brain. Which means if you hook it up to artificial eyes, ears, hands, and mouth, and you talk to it, it would talk back. You ask it to do things that might do them just like the original person would in the same situation, because that's the input output. You talk to someone and then maybe they do something. And a brain emulation would be being able to do all of that cheap, cheaper than it takes to, to rent a human, which as you know, are expensive. Yeah. So if you can rent a brain emulation cheaper than you can rent a human, then these brain emulations take over the economy. They are the ones you'd rather have doing things because they're cheaper. And a world where that happens is dramatically different. And so my book, The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life, and Robots Rule the Earth, goes through in great detail to tell you how the world changes when these things exist and are cheap. And, and when you say uh, cheaper than the cost to rent a human, I, I don't know what the lowest minimum wage is right now, but let's say that renting a human for an hour is, I don't know, in some states, it's like eight fifty. Um, the Right the maybe the amortized cost of renting a robot for that hour it, it would take do, do you have a timeline for when it would get below minimum wage let's say so my book is mostly about what happens when this world appears and it's not very sensitive to when it appears so i've chosen to analyze the things that are the easiest to analyze most robustly and so the transition is hard Fair so enough. I have said less, although some things, about the transition and when it might happen. So I'd say roughly 
in a century or so is when you might expect this sort of thing to happen, not the next 20 years. Yeah. And when it happens, there's a combination of making it possible at all and then lowering the costs till it passes this threshold. So most likely the very first thing you make will cost $10 billion yeah. and not be rentable at a very cheap price. And then it's a research object where people are trying to figure out how to lower its cost because if you can lower the cost, you can make trillions of dollars off things. So the thing you would do with the very first ones would be to try to figure out how to make them cheaper. Uh, and then, you know, basically the simplest thing here is, is you're making a model where you're putting in everything you can to make the model very realistic. But everything you put in is expensive. So you're gonna start throwing things out and seeing if it still works with that. So as you may know, say, race cars, if you go inside a race car and look inside, there's not much there because they've thrown everything they could out of the race car. Yeah. See, whatever it just took minimally to make that race car go is what they have. And, and they do not have cup holders and ashtrays and all the other things you might want in a car because it's a race car. They, they're trying to make it the, the streamlined minimal thing it has to be. Yeah. So similarly with the M's, they would start throwing out things from the very first ones and seeing if they still work. And of course, they'd be trying to specialize the computer chips on which they were made. They would start with general chips, and then they would move to more specialized chips to represent the more specialized computation, try to get scale economies in the production of those chips. You know, they, they would be trying a lot of things to lower the price. And maybe it would take 10 years to lower the price down far enough. But then when they finally did, you know, it, the range at which like the cost is 10% different than humans, that, that will be a very short time. Yeah. As you may know, like Moore's law in, you know, in the past decades was that costs fell by a factor of two every 18 months. So uh, if, you know, these costs would not just be hardware costs falling, it would be all the software costs falling. And so you should expect, you know, as very quickly after they're the same price as human, you know, they are half the price of humans and then a quarter of the price of human, just very quickly. So uh, you know, being very close wouldn't be much of an error. I see. And w one of the things I wanted to ask you, because I talked uh, a while back to Scott Aronson. He's a... Uh, okay. Yep, I know. Scott, okay, great. Uh, and big in quantum computing. And yep. one of the, um, the points that he mentioned when it comes to uh, replicating a human brain, it's like, okay, the brain is a certain organization matter. Yep. It makes sense that you could represent it in another way, like in a robot or however you please. Um, but in terms of downloading one person's consciousness onto that machine, there's um, there's a, a, a theorem in quantum computer or quantum rather uh, quantum mechanics uh, called the no cloning theorem that you can't perfectly replicate uh, right. quantum information. So in other words, the idea that you can download your brain to a computer. Um, it, it, it wouldn't necessarily be you, you, would it? Well, I mean, there's several things to say here. First of all, most likely in the early era, brain scans would be destructive processes. Hmm. You're not downloading you onto a separate thing. You are destroying the existing brain in the process of scanning its information. So the no cloning theorem is not a problem there. Well, well, but the discussion that uh, I had with Scott was in the case of, say, teleportation, where someone is right. cloned and then they shoot you in the head or something like that in the process of cloning you. And it's like, okay, are you willing to get on that, that teleportation? And the idea being that even when you're scanning the brain initially, 
that scan, the information is on, on some level uh, incomplete in, in that it's not a, a, it does not perfectly capture uh, the information that's stored in your brain. Um, Again, there are, there are several things to say here. Like please, if, yeah. when you destructively change something, you could get all the information quantum mechanically because you don't have to leave it there. It's not like you shoot it with a bullet. You, you, you basically take it apart piece by piece hmm. uh, as you scan it. But the more practical issue is that the brain is enormously complicated with a lot of detail. And if you had to reproduce all that detail, it would just take a lot, lot longer to create a brain emulation. So the bet is that like with most systems, uh, it's designed to isolate the key degrees of freedom from the other more noisy degrees of freedom. So if you look at any electronic system that you know of, any signal processing, the physical system that it is, is an enormously large complicated physical system, but the degrees of freedom of that system that embody the key information that take inputs, change internal state and send outputs, those degrees of freedom are designed to be isolated from the other degrees of freedom as much as possible so that random noises do not change the functioning of the system. Uh, so that, you know, that's what an insulator around a wire is basically. Sure. You know, I mean, your electronics have a lot of wires, but they also have a lot of insulators around the wires. And the purpose of an insulator is to keep the different wires from interacting and keep other things from affecting the wires. And of course, you may even put a, a cage or a, you know, some sort of thing around your electronics to shield it from outside influences. And that's just generically how we design signal processing systems, right. because they're always, you know, the, the signal processing degrees of freedom in any realistic system are always a tiny fraction of all the degrees of freedom in the system. And you don't want all those other degrees of freedom messing up the key degrees of freedom that you were focused on. If you want to take in a signal and you know, do a Fourier transform on it for something, you want to keep that signal clean while you're doing the Fourier transform, and then you want it to reliably send to an output, and you don't want other random things happening to sort of change all the, all the bits in the process. And so similarly, we expect in the brain, it's designed to process signals. It's designed to take, say, what comes in from your eye and go in, into the brain and move it around and then send it out to your fingers and tell you what to do. It's designed to process signals. But it's in the context, of course, of this huge system that it's in. And so it's got to be isolated to a substantial degree from those other degrees of freedom. Like your cells in your brain remarkably have all the abilities pretty much that any cell out in the wild does to eat and reproduce itself and to look for you know, disturbances in its environment. You know, a cell is this enormously complicated creature and your brain is just not using the vast majority of those capacities for its purpose of processing signals. Just like your heart cells are mainly pumping the heart and they are not using all these capacities the heart cells have, similarly your muscle cells. That's the basic nature of a multicellular animal is that in, in all of its organs, the organ has a limited function and the cells are arranged to produce that function. And then all the other complexity that those cells have and are is you know, set to be not getting in the way of the key function that's pr producing. And so similarly with the brain, we expect the brain is yet another organ and we can see what its function is. And so we expect that it's designed to isolate the key you know, things it's doing from all the other messy complications in the cells that it contains, because that's the fundamental nature of a multicellular organism is it piles together cells to do things. And it doesn't like take apart, it doesn't only you know, make new things that aren't cells, it just takes these generic cells and piles them together. And so it's, it's enormously wasteful yeah. in the sense that 
all these cells are capable of all these other activities that you know, cells out in the past and the wild were capable of, but in the multicellular animal, most of those capacities are just not used. They're just wasted. They're just set aside. Uh, but that's how evolution figured out how to make you and me. And so in order to make our muscles, to make our heart, to make our skin, to make our lungs, and to make our brain. And so, you know, we're pretty sure that there are some parts of the cells in terms of their, you know, chemical densities and electrical potentials, et cetera. There are some key degrees of freedom in those cells that are the ones that are used by the brain to process signals. And then there are all these other billions of degrees of freedom in these cells. And this, this, it must be designed to sort of keep those separate. I, I see. Um, I, I guess the, the only the, the sort of last question I had on this subject is when, when you talked about uh, signals processing and how we can we can keep the, the signal clean while we apply a, a transform on it and so on. Um, does it matter at all that the signals in the brain will not be uh, like the signals in our computers where it's zeros and ones, but rather it'll have uh, directions and it'll, it'll more closely resemble like a qubit? We have many kinds of non-digital electronics. Yeah. In fact, before the arrival of digital computers, most electronics was non-digital. So yeah. we certainly have a lot of experience with non-digital signal processing and the same things apply there. We, we are very confident that we know about non-digital -signal, non signal processors also need to keep the key degrees of freedom separate from the other degrees of freedom. Sure. All right, fair enough. Um, the, I, the M, the M's though, one of the things that's interesting in uh, the age of M that you described is you're going in also as an economist. We're talking about- uh, well, Mainly as an economist. That's the main thing I'm doing in the book. Yes. I, so, so I'd say most everybody who's talked about the subject before has talked about the philosophy of mind or the philosophy <laughs> of identity, or maybe the computer science of, of how you'd organize it, or like the futurism of when it would happen, or the physics yeah. of what the device is, how it would work. And everybody's neglected, like- the economics of like what would actually happen and so that's why i wrote this book to say no let's let's talk about what would actually happen and one of the points you make is that productivity would be uh doubling rapidly uh, but wages would be depressed why is that so through almost all human history and for pretty much all animals who have ever existed they have existed at what we call subsistence wage levels that is, um, the population of, say, rabbits expands until they can't make more rabbits because there isn't more food. Okay. And that means they have just enough food to support as many rabbits as they have. And for humans, we have almost always lived at that sort of subsistence level where the number of humans who existed in any one area was limited by the amount of food and resources that could be collected to support those humans. And therefore, you know, if the resources grew only very slowly, then the population could very quickly grow fast enough to keep up with the resources. And so even though humans were succeeding at growing their number and growing the, you know, their capacities, the per human level of resources stayed about the same because uh, of this, you know, basic feature that's always been true of humans and other animals, which is, you know, they live near subsistence. In the last few hundred years, we've seen something different. In the last few hundred years, we've seen the ability to grow the economy and grow it faster than we grow the population. And so that means the wealth per person or income per person has been rising in the last few hundred years, 
And that's because we just found a way to grow the economy much faster or, or substantially faster than we've grown the population, which is you know, a remarkable and pleasant thing to live in. Yes. But it's not an axiom of the universe that you know, economy always grows faster than population. And in the age of M, uh, we find a way to grow the population faster such that it's no longer true that the economy grows faster than the population. The population of M's can grow faster than does the economy. And so the wealth per M falls, but it falls and stops at the point where you know, you're at subsistence, where you have enough to survive, because if you fall further, then they don't survive. Right. And so that's what Malthusian equilibrium, if you like. And again, it's not a weird hypothetical. It's what we've just seen in human history and in animal history for the you know, history of the planet. So we are pretty confident we know what happens in that sort of scenario. And we're also, I suppose, operating under the assumption that M's will have the same rights as humans. Um, the key by definition, M's do the same thing that a human would in the same situation. So if M's behave and act differently, it's because they're in a different world. So we can ask, how would humans act in a different world in order to ask, what would M's do? Sure. That's the working you know, basics of the analysis. So we have seen slavery exist in human history. Uh, slavery has been a robust feature of human history for the last 10,000 years. It wasn't very robust you know, for the million years before that. Foragers didn't really do slaves, but since the introduction of farming, we've done a lot of slaves. So there's no way I can offer you a guarantee that slaves won't exist. Yeah. I can just say, well, look, slavery has generally been a minor element overall in human history. And I can also show you the way we understand when slavery is more or less attractive, and then show you that in the M world, it's not particularly attractive. So yeah. there's not particularly strong reasons to expect slavery to exist in the M world, but there's certainly no guarantees that it couldn't exist. I mean, the most fundamental thing to say is, look, you're looking at a transition to a very different world. Yeah. So if you look back in history at all the different ways humans have ever been, that gives you a rough estimate of how different M's could be. They're going to be, in some sense, at that scale of different. It's, it's a big change from here to the M world. So we're trying to guess you know, what that M world's like, but the first thing to know is it's going to be different. Yeah. And so you should not feel very confident in any one you know, thing about this world unless you work through a very specific argument to tell you what that conclusion is. And so basically slavery or not is not very constrained. So right now in our world, we could be, there could be a lot more slaves in our world. The, the, the physical nature of our world or the nature of production in our world does not prevent slavery. Slavery right. is quite consistent with our world. If we do not have world slavery, it's because of some other more you know, context-dependent cultural things. Slave, but in it, there might be worlds where slavery would be pushed for because the economy would say, no, slavery is just really productive and you're going to do that. The M world is not one of those worlds. So, so for example, you know, a classic slavery world is say the US South in the 1800s. Uh, in that world, there were some kinds of work, i.e. picking cotton, that was very simple and very painful where basically torturing people could make them do more of it but if they were free they would just not volunteer right you'd have to pay them a lot of money to do this miserable thing because it was not very pleasant but if you could own people and force them to do it 
then that was feasible. And so there was a productive opportunity for owning slaves in the US South in the particular tasks of say picking cotton because it was just such a task that ordinary people would just dislike to do. Right. When slaves in the US South worked in a house say, or worked in cities, that was a context in which they were not substantially more productive, where there wasn't much of an advantage in having slaves do that. And in fact, those slaves were not, not nearly as harshly treated. In order to get people to be productive in those environments, being harshly treating them doesn't work very well because they have a lot of discretion about doing things you can't see. And if you really make them mad, they have ways to undermine what you were trying to do and uh, it's therefore like really harshly treating them just doesn't work very well there. So. I, I see. And one of the other points that you make in the book is that basically people who don't already have some capital when this transition uh, happens are basically just, they're not going to be able to recover and um, or catch up economically. So, and, so let's distinguish the humans from the ants. Yeah, yes, please. Um, so, I mean, you know, initially there's only humans, right. and then M's show up, and the possibility of M's shows up, and then the M economy grows, and as the M economy grows, the M's take over the jobs from humans, and then pretty soon humans only own capital, they don't really own the ability to work, unless they become an M. So uh, most humans will then be living off of their ability to earn income, I mean, so their, their capital or charity or some sort of redistribution from the government. And, you know, that could go badly if they don't have very much of that. So, yeah. you know, I recommend that we try to arrange insurance for people so that uh, they are protected in this scenario. Uh, it doesn't have to be government insurance. It could be private insurance, but however it's arranged, I recommend that we set that up and that that's a robust prediction about the scenario. And it would, it's relatively cheap to set up way in advance. Yeah. So might as well set it up in advance. <laughs> Let's uh, you know, get ready for that. We just set up the insurance. Um, but most of the M world will not be living off their capital. And the Ms are living off of their ability to work. Now, the key thing is though, out of the 10 billion humans, probably most Ms are copies of the few th of the 1000 best humans. Mm. So. Some of the humans can get income from their M copies working, but very few. Uh, and so the M's are not living off their capital for the most part. The M's are working. Now the M's have more or few copies of them depending on how much demand there is. So there's enormous inequality among the M's in terms of the number of copies of each M, mm. but relatively little inequality in terms of their daily wage. And it reminds me of something I, I, I heard someone uh, say once, uh, a friend of mine who said, you know, I, w I wish I had like a Congress of myself so that I could send myself off to do like different tasks. And oh, sure. it, it, it was it, a little kitschy or cheeky and kind of narcissistic. But at the same time, um, one of the sort of things that has not been said yet in this discussion is couldn't we somehow arrange this world so that we have M's who just do all the work and it leaves and, and somehow disable certain features of, of, of the M's such that they're not suffering under the yoke of whatever work they have to do. 
and we reap all the profit. I mean, why can't this liberate humanity as opposed to uh, create vast inequality? Well, the scenario I'm describing isn't very different from the scenario you, you gave. Uh, that is, in the baseline scenario I'm working with, I assume a continuation of a capitalist economy right. and, and co wage competition and that sort of thing. And so then, you know, the economy starts doubling roughly every month. And so from the human's point of view, it's growing their wealth very fast. So the humans basically must initially all retire. And then some of them are scanned to become emulations. And, but even, even them are still mostly retired and enjoying living off their wealth. And the emulations are at subsistence level working hard, uh, but in a vastly growing economy. Uh, and so, you know, that is the scenario you roughly described, except for you want somehow the emulations to sort of be lobotomized. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. So the working assumption in the book is that um, we know how to do emulations, but not much else. So initially, it would make sense that we can just take a brain and we can scan it and we can make these models, but we don't understand how it works. Yeah. It's just this big spaghetti code. So just like today, you can copy software, you can copy a movie or music without knowing how it works or how it was made. You can just copy these emulations and then you can turn them on, turn them off, run them fast or slow, delete them. But you can't do that much else. You can't take somebody's music ability and combine it with somebody else's Christmas vacation memory. <laughs> you just okay. can't do those things. It's just an opaque black box. And so that's the baseline scenario. Now, eventually you would be able to make more modifications and I try to go through what modifications would be feasible. But I honestly don't think lobotomizing them is very useful nor never, nor good I not, nor good for them or us fair enough uh, you know most humans in human history have lived near subsistence level and, and enjoyed their lives and, and I wouldn't want to lobotomize all of them yes yeah, so uh I don't see the the M's world it's hard work but remember their world doesn't have disease or grime their bodies are always beautiful their environments are always beautiful the main thing is they just have to work most of the time, but their work isn't very boring. You know, most very routine tasks are pretty automated. So they have relatively challenging work. And uh, they're also like much more elite than the average human today. So the, the typical emulation is gonna be at the level of our Nobel prize winners, Olympic gold medalists, billionaires, heads of state. That's the quality of the you know, workability and work, work ethic and everything else you might want out of these emulations, they are basically just much better than us. Hmm. And many of them are workaholics. They really into their jobs. Uh, and so, you know, let them be into it. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, okay. There, as you were saying that there are a couple of things that came to mind. The first, when you said uh, uh, better than us, there is kind of um there is a, a vein of thinking among technologists that strikes me on some level as almost being like anti-human uh, where people talk about transhumanism and, you know, people uh, will, will merge with the machines and there's almost kind of a delight with the idea that we'll be cast aside and made irrelevant. Um, how do you feel about that? So first we should just ask, are M's human? Yes. So um, you, you've probably walked through the Star Trek transporter scenario hypothetical. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Ask yourself, 
there's this transporter that supposedly reads where all your atoms are and then takes the information and puts together something on the other end, which has all the same positions that is supposedly you. And you know, when people teach philosophy classes and they explain all this to the students and they ask the students, okay, this thing that comes out of the transporter after you go in, is that you? And people say about 50-50, that's me versus not. Then you switch the question around. You say, you just walked out of the transporter. Is the thing that walked into it you? And they all say yes. Mm. So there's an asymmetry, you see, looking forward in time and asking, do you identify with these things? And looking backward in time and asking, do you identify with those things? So on the basis of that, I'm pretty confident the M's themselves will see themselves as very human. Yeah. It's just us today looking forward at them or who aren't so sure, just in the way our distant ancestors might not have granted us the label human when they look at how weird we are. Yeah. So, but the key thing we've seen over history is that we have changed, right? Enormous changes have happened across history in terms of human habits, human styles, personalities, you know, ways of thinking, values, life, you know, what we do in each day, that sort of thing. And we should expect that to continue in the future. So M's are you know, about as different from us today as we are from farmers from 5,000 years ago or foragers from a half million years ago. It's that level of difference. And again, they could, foragers from half a million years ago could look at us and go, nope, not human. Yeah. <laughs> something else, they've, they've become something else. And you know, who we think, no, no, we're the same as them because we look backwards and we embrace them as our origins and therefore as us. And that's what the M's will do. They will look back at us and see as us. But of course, when we look back at the foragers, we also look at them and we go like, you guys weren't as productive as us. <laughs> look at all these things you couldn't do. You, you hadn't learned all these technologies we have, all these ways of doing things. You don't have the large scale economy to rely on. You know, they are just less capable. You, you don't necessarily think it's their fault as individuals. <laughs> Collectively, we have learned more together, but emulations will look back at us in the same way and say, well, you know, not your fault that you didn't know all the things we know and aren't able to do all the things we can do, but over time, we have all collectively learned more. And so that's the sense in which they would feel superior. It's exactly the sense in which you feel superior to people 5,000 years ago or half a million years ago. Um, it, you know, our, go ahead. I mean, that, that's the answer to... Yeah, are they yeah. human or, are, or is humanity gone? Well, it's, it's a choice to decide whether that's humanity or not. Uh, but almost always is guaranteed that sort of on the collective level, we will see that we have gained more. So you, now you probably have heard the stories that the transition from foraging to farming may well have been worse for individual farmers. Individual farmers for a long time may have had worse lives than individual foragers. Their right. diet was worse. They didn't travel as much. They had war. They had disease. They had inequality. Um, but nevertheless, the, the total capacity from all humanity in the farming era was still vastly larger than in the forager era, which is why we could have far more farmers than we had foragers. So you might look together at the emulation world and say, individual M's, you don't like their lives. Yeah. You think your life is better than their lives. And maybe it is. But if you look at the entire M world, you got to admit that they collectively have a lot more capacity yeah and, and as you said that it reminded me of something i talked to this anthropologist wade davis who said how uh, all the th these tribes every tribe that he's encountered their name for uh their own tribe is the people like we are humans and anyone else in our tribe 
you're some alien, you know, yeah, it's yeah. A, of course. a strange tendency in, in people, I guess. Um, well, when you a strange tendency in other people, very yeah. natural in your own group. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and the other uh, subject, or the other question on that subject I wanted to ask you is, um, and, and I might have this, uh, the statistics slightly wrong, but I believe it's since something like the 1970s, even though productivity, of course, with technology has gone way up, uh, real wages have either stagnated or declined. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there, but- um, There is disagreement about that. Oh, okay. Is there, yeah. to the, I mean, the claim that people may most often make is that the median wage in rich countries hasn't risen very much right. in the last few decades. But most everyone agrees the mean wages are way up. And most everyone agrees that in, in, in the entire world, wages are way up. It's yeah. only about the risk countries in the last few decades. And then there are disputes about whether various kinds of in incomes are being correctly included. So for example, you know, government taxes and redistribution has gone way up. Is that being included in the income or wages measures, et cetera? Um, yeah. But nevertheless, oh, you, you were going with somewhere well, with this. It, it, yeah, the question I wanted to ask is, um, and specifically, I, I guess we can concentrate on the U.S. then um, for this case. But when we talk about uh, a world of M's where it's hugely productive um, and yet there's this inequality, um, do, do we on some level already see that happening? Almost surely the wage things that will happen for M's have nothing to do with the changes in wages in the U.S. and the median wages sure. over the last few decades. They are just completely unrelated processes. Uh, the M wages would be vastly lower than the current median U.S. wages, uh, vastly lower hmm. uh, in real terms and even in subjective terms. So, um, you know, it, it's not, not at all closely related. It, um, yes, uh, I'm only suggesting the idea that as technological capabilities increase, it seem you, my non-economist intuition would think that, okay, if productivity is going up, wouldn't wages go up because people are producing more wealth and value with their work? Um, but we've already seen today that that's not the case. And well, maybe... it's not always the case. Sure. Is if you look on average over many centuries, you'll see a very consistent total rise in wages with rises in you know per capita productivity. It's just you don't always see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. So again. Here you're looking at median, not mean wages. You're looking at the United States. You're looking over the past few decades. Right. Uh, you know these are, you know, distinct things. You're also, of course, you're, you're not noticing that in that time period we we nearly doubled the, the fraction of the population that works since we started having all the women work. Remember? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so family wages have gone substantially up because they are more wage earners. Yeah. Um, and so you know, but again, just the main thing to realize. I mean, is that this larger picture I'm telling you about how wages have consistently risen over centuries yeah. is not a reliable prediction of the long-term future. So again, the key thing going on there is we have increased many kinds of technologies and gotten better at many things, but we did not get better at reproduction. Making babies is still done in the same old, slow, expensive way. Yeah. With the introduction of M's, all of a sudden we have a much better way to make, to reproduce. Yeah. And that's what changes the relationship you know, the per capita wealth is suddenly now that is what drives wages down. It's not the product total production, it's the way to reproduce. And 
what's interesting, uh, I've, I've talked to a couple, um, I, I want to speak to the, the fact that the assumption that uh, in 100 years, capitalism will still be going on, which seems like a reasonable, sure. a reasonable um, assumption, because I, I talked to uh, Bill Ayers, the, the weather underground guy, and I talked to uh, another, a, a couple like 60s radicals. And what was very interesting was that they were all consumed with this idea that capitalism is going to collapse imminently. And I look around at a lot of people um, my age as well, and they have that, that same feeling. Why do you think that this, uh, this system has... So, so the word capitalism is unfortunately not very precise. Sure. So if you just look back across the sweep of human history, you know, we almost always had property. Right. We've had very few societies that, that didn't have property all over the place. And most societies not only had property, they had trade. Uh, and so they had unequal incomes yeah and they had you know unequal wealth these are things that have been true for many thousands of years across the entire world so when people say capitalism they somehow are trying to set that aside and declare that's not capitalism that was something else hmm. they need to say somehow capitalism is this rare unique thing that only happened in certain countries in the last you know 200 years and therefore it's about to go away yeah. and so you need, in order to define it that way, you need to like restrict your definition of capitalism to have, I don't know, you know, big banks and mortgages and uh, credit cards and, you know, big firms or things like that. Yeah. But if we just generalize and we just talk about property and trade, you know, that just goes way back. Yeah. So, the, you know, then I would say, well, you know, over time we have innovation and we have new kinds of ways of relating to each other and kinds of things we can do with each other and just in general if those things are productive and mutually valuable then they're probably going to stay yeah so then the question is of the things that have appeared in the last 300 years which of them aren't mutually productive things that we like and we want to keep and we will stay um so if you just say yes the world has always had property and always had uh trade but of course, maybe they didn't have banks or maybe they didn't have mortgage statements or maybe they didn't have credit cards or other things like that. Um, then we could ask, well, once those things became feasible, you know, is there a reason why they would stop? Uh, you know, for example, now we can have bank loans more easily than we once could. Okay, do people like bank loans? Seems so. Is there some reason to, or that, to stop them from having bank loans? I mean, so loans are a very ancient sort of thing, of course. Yeah. But we've just made it easier to do more loans now. So if you said, you know, if, you, if you're going to define capitalism in terms of loans, well, the world's been capitalism for a very long time, right? Because loans have been a thing for a very long time, as, yeah. as has property. So uh, I, I would more, you know, if, if, we, if we instead take this label capitalism set it aside and just look at particular things, yeah. I would see more a history of like accumulation of particular kinds of things that people find out. So they say insurance, right? They didn't have a lot of insurance in ancient Rome. Now we've got insurance. If you call that capitalism, you might say, well, is insurance going to go away? Do, do people not want to get insurance in the future? Uh, you might say, well, the government could step in and provide insurance instead. Well, now we're talking about whether insurance is you know, provided by the government or privately. And so 
you know, that's, an that's a conversation we had because we have collectively insured something, say unemployment insurance is now more, more done by government. Um, and so we, we, you know, the most, I mean, in some sense, people try to deny it, but, you know, when people say they expect capitalism to go away, by far the most concrete thing they could be imagining is a lot more government because True. in the last century, that's pretty much it. When people have said, let's have less capitalism, what they've actually done is produced a lot more government. They, they talk hypothetically about worker co-ops or something, but the actual thing they do is to produce more government, you know, things. So at the moment we have government running a lot of things. In many countries, they run the hospitals, they run the schools, they run unemployment insurance, et cetera. And so the question might be then, well, what's the scope for more or less government over the coming centuries? But, you know, in the world we have now, we can see that, you know, there are many things people say should be, have the government do more. And there are many things people say the government should do less. And we can see that, you know, a lot of forces are arrayed on both sides and, you know, things are relatively stable over, say, even a half century. Yeah. We're, we aren't seeing huge switches in terms of which kinds of things are done by government or not. Um, you know, more, say, maybe in the early 20th century, we saw more experimentation with large variations. And we've now seen more of a convergence, right, between countries around the world deciding what things should be done by governments and what things shouldn't be. And, you know, that seems to me the easy thing to predict. <laughs> is uh, you know, unless there are big changes in the nature of our preference over government doing things or not, right? Um, so so I, you, know, you point to a particular thing and say, yeah. you know, medicine say, you say, well, medicine should be done more by the government. Now we could walk through all the you know, reasons why that might or might not be a good idea or the forces that might push for or against it. And, but you know, to claim that like in a century or two, basically government will do everything, that's a pretty strong claim, right? Okay, so I, I have a particular that I'd like to ask you about, um, and it's the institution of the publicly traded corporation. And okay. something that like Michael Lewis talked about is that a lot of yeah. the banks uh, before, when they were private, were a lot more uh, responsible and less risk averse. Yeah. They didn't have to uh, maximize profits each quarter in order yep. to satisfy sure. shareholders. Yeah. Um, and the corporation is is a relatively young um, institution. I think it's like less than 200 years old. Um, is that something that you see? And it's also run in, in a way that's almost like a monarchy where you have fiefdoms, kind of like a, a quasi. So there's two issues here. Please. One go. is just large organizations at all. So honestly, you know, as you may know, the industrial revolution was a really big deal. And fundamentally, the main thing that drove the Industrial Revolution, I would say, is new organizations, new larger organizations. So organizing people on larger scales is the main thing that allowed the huge wealth of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And so that's a big new thing, and that's going to stay because we're not going to throw away the Industrial Revolution. It's very powerful and important. So we're going to have large organizations. And you know, unless you argue that they're going to be public large organizations, they're going to be private organizations. And therefore, somebody has to own them. Somebody has to control them, right? right? There, and there aren't that many options. You could imagine worker co-ops, but you know, people have tried them a lot and they just haven't worked very well. You know, that we have a long history of worker co-ops and I'm sorry, they, they just keep failing. We, you know, the other two main options are privately owned and then publicly owned uh, by, by in terms of mean by stock owned. So in fact, you know, most, most capital in the world today is not in public firms, it's in private firms. So 
private firms are not the main thing going on. Right. The, the main reason that private firms exist in theory is that there are people like you and me who have capital and we would like to invest in these ventures, but we don't want to run them and own them. And so a private company is a way in which people like you and me can own a share of the investment without running, running and managing. So, but there are many private equity firms where the people who own them do manage them. And those firms actually make higher rates of return and they are more responsive to investment opportunities. And you know, that's a reason actually why it's good that there are some really rich people because then there can be these private equity firms which are more productive. Mm. Um, yeah. But if you want to get a return, then you might be willing to invest in these public firms even if their return is less than the private firms because you can't invest in the private firms. Right. Now, so the way the world is split up is, you know, when there's big risks to be taken and big judgments to be made, the firm is private and then they go public when it's time to milk the cow. Milking the cow just means you've got a stable firm and a stable industry, and you basically know how to keep running it. And there aren't really big choices to make. And so the, the public managers can't screw it up too bad. And so that's when firms go public. And as soon as a firm like that looks like it may have some really big you know, investment opportunities that good judgment needs to be made, that's when people take the firm private again. Hmm. So we already are well aware that public firms are less efficient and especially at making you know, good judgments about investment opportunities. But nevertheless, they're the main way that people like you and me can actually get invest in businesses and, and get a rate of return from them. And you know, that's what we do then. Uh, are you familiar with the, uh, the Mondragon Corporation in Spain? No. They're, um, they're, uh, they're one, of, like, the, the five, one of the five largest corporations in Spain. They're not quite a co-op but they, they elect their own management. I, I guess what I'm getting at is it, there is yeah. a certain, uh, I, I, it's, it's more productive in economic terms, but there is a certain callousness about when you see uh, Apple factories in China where they have to put up nets so that people don't you know, jump out the building. Uh, the, isn't there a way to, to make this like I'm all about people starting businesses and making money and trade and all that good stuff. Isn't there a way to modify capitalism in some way so that it's not, uh, it doesn't have quite as many. Set aside the word capitalism. Yeah. Okay. Sure. The corporation. The big complicated world. Yes. Being a big complicated world, there are thousands and millions of possibilities for changes. Sure. The, the question, it's certainly not true that the world will never change from what it is now. The question is just, can you identify any concrete changes that you know, have a good chance of actually being an improvement? That's the hard part. And so then you have to go to very specific proposals. So you say, worker co-ops, well, if you just mean generic worker co-ops of the sort we've seen for many centuries, you know, they just consistently haven't done a good job. That's just you know, the, the long track record. Now, if maybe you figure out a new kind of worker co-op that is designed to avoid some of the problems of the failures in the past, well, you know, give it a shot. That, of course, that's the nature of lots of categories of things that have done, haven't done very well. People still think, well, let me look in there for, for a variation, right? Yeah. Maybe I can find something that, that'll make that work. And may, maybe well, but, but again, you know, how do we decide how much investment to put into that sort of a project? So I mean, the, the, a key question in an economy like ours that grows so fast is 
who decides where the investment goes and how do they decide? And you know, the key thing is if you think some new form of work, worker co-op is promising, you know, the rest of us say, fine, you put up your money and you invest in it and you see if you can make a go of it. And if the rest of us don't think that sounds too promising, then maybe we think we shouldn't have to invest in your thing because our judgment is that looks crappy. And so that is sort of the decentralized you know, usual investment scenario. You could call that capitalist, but like not what else is there other than some more centralized process that decides what the investment is, right? You want to set up a committee, right? Who's going to be deciding which things to invest in, if not letting each person decide what to invest in themselves? Uh, yes. Well, one of the points that like a person like Noam Chomsky might make is that, you know, after all, the corporations themselves are centralized where it's basically run top down a lot of ways. Did, yep. did that interfere with the, the decentralized I idea here? Well, I mean, as you know, there's this idea that the largest scales of the world, we have competition right. and what's competing is often organizations at smaller scales. So in the stock market, say, Anybody can go buy and sell any stock. And if they think they know which things are underpriced, they can go buy them and, and make some money. But the actual firms that make money in the stock market are big organizations like hedge funds. Yeah. They're not just individuals going on their hunches. They are you know, like ways people have organized themselves to get things going. So the question is, well, who decides which hedge funds should exist and how they should be structured? Well, we say, well, that's a competition. You figure out a new way to make a hedge fund. If you can make a go of it, then you see if you can make it work. But we're competing to figure out which kind of organizations work. We don't assume people should just be acting individually without organizing themselves with other people. And our modern, again, that's the main thing that the industrial revolution was, is learning about, we should have big organizations and learning the basics of some of the ones that can work. And we are rapidly learning over time in the sense, but there is a lot we know more about organizations now than a century ago, yeah. because we are still very early in the stage of, of making big organizations. Uh, and so, but some of them people think will work well and they turn out crappy and others people don't think it'll work at all and they work out. And the question is, well, who should be making the judgments about which of these things to try? And you're someone who's big on like prediction markets. Is yep. there a way to, um, well, maybe first off, could, could you define what a prediction market is for people? Sure. The key idea here is just when we want to collectively decide what we know, to take a lot of different people with the things they do know or could know and put them together into a single central estimate that we can all rely on, a very robust effective mechanism is a betting market or equivalently a speculative market like a stock market or currency or, or commodities markets. Those are very effective mechanisms for collecting in information together into a consensus estimate about what to do or what we know. And in fact, there's enormous potential for these things beyond what they're being currently used for. We could use them more specifically to make particular decisions in firms. So for example, we could use them to decide whether to fire CEOs. Right. We, we could, you know, at the moment, an ordinary stock market just tells you what the company is worth on average over all the different scenarios, but we could make conditional stock markets where we have a stock price conditional on keeping the CEO or conditional on not keeping the CEO. And then those two prices would tell us about the value of the company in those two scenarios and the difference between those prices would be advice about whether to keep the CEO. And so we could in principle set up markets like that. And similarly, you could do the same thing for a worker co-op. You could say, hey market, let's imagine we take this company and we turn it into a worker co-op. 
What do you think? Will that improve the overall value of the company? Yeah. And uh, the speculators could tell you, well, no, maybe not, right? And, you know, but of course, this isn't a way to answer all possible questions. I mean, sometimes you just have to go out and try things, right? Yeah. So if you have an idea for a worker co-op and maybe other investors don't think it's such a great idea, there should still be a space for you to, to go give it a try. But I, you know, I still think you should look at the history of the, the failures yeah. and ask yourself, what's your theory about what's gone wrong in the past and why your variation will work better in the future? You, you owe it to you, yourself, and the rest of us to have such a theory in your head. And that's the sort of thing I, I, I less often see clearly articulated by people who want to radically change the system, say, for more worker co-ops. They, they just right. feel like it's a moral principle that we ought to have such things. Well, but not even... Uh, it, I, here, the, the, the reason I brought up Mondragon is because it's, if, if you say a publicly traded corporation, a political analogy to it would be more like a monarchy. Uh, Mondragon is more like a republic where people are elected into positions of power and then they're, they're entrusted to run things. And that seems to create some lever of not only accountability, but I know from my own experience working at corporations, my past job, there were people who were very politically savvy. Uh, I'm, I'm like an engineer, so I'm, I'm, right. yeah. I'm not a politically savvy dude. And there are people who would be managers. And I'm like, this person is not smart. They, they don't know what they're doing. And uh, I would propose things or other people would propose things and they get shot down. And this is at like a, a Fortune 500 company. This is not, some, this is not right. a, a, a failing corporation by any means. It, it just... It, when we talk about prediction markets, it feels like there's a way to incorporate the combined intelligence of everyone who works at these large organizations, filter it up on some level. I am eager to find organizations willing to experiment with uh, trying prediction markets in the organizations yes. that do under an organization. So I think there is an enormous potential there in the long run. Uh, but of course, I think it's, you know, Nobody should be required to do these experiments. I think I should be trying to entice them based on my arguments about why it'd be more effective. But this is still somewhat separate from whether they are co-op run or um, you know, run by investors. Although, I mean, I, I would say it this way, the hierarchical organizations fundamentally have bottlenecks at the top of the hierarchy because there are just very limited channels of communication. And right. so a big limitation in any hierarchical organization, regardless of you know, who fundamentally controls it, is how to decide which tasks should be done near the root of that tree where things are very congested and there's very limited time and resources and how to move tasks away from the root of that tree. So I would say prediction markets are basically a way we can take some of the prediction tasks off of the plate of managers <laughs> so that they can spend more time on all their other tasks, which they are way overloaded with because they're at the root of this tree. No. And so you know, if successful, basically we would be allowing more individuals in the firm to help predict key consequences of choices, but then we would no longer see that as a management task yeah. because exactly we were letting everybody else do it. Uh, that's, that's different than what, what, you know, how to decide who's, who's at the top of the tree and, and what, you know, what person's there and what their priorities are. I see those as somewhat different issues. If we had prediction markets all through the firm predicting lots of things, we'd still have to have somebody at the top of the tree, right. somebody who would have to pick them. 
So honestly, the, the one reform I think would be the most potent, which is you know, something a lot of people have already talked about in the past, is just make it easier to buy firms out. So as you know, you know, there was a period, say, in the 70s and 80s where it was easier to sort of do what they call you know, raider or to you know, buy out a firm to take it over, host a hostile takeover. And hostile takers really have enormous potential for disciplining firms. At the moment, if you see a firm that you think is mismanaged, it's actually, you know, very hard to do much about it. <laughs> you mm -hmm. can just, you know, you could sell the stock if you thought the stock were overpriced, but the, the, the price of the stock may well exactly reflect how badly it's mismanaged. Yeah. <laughs> the opportunity there would be to take it over and remanage it, try to manage it better and make more profit. But that's just prevented by a lot of things that prevent hostile takeovers. And so the world has just allowed a lot of poison pills, they call them, or other mechanisms that just make it hard to do hostile takeovers. If we just made it vastly easier to do hostile takeovers, then, for example, if you figured out a way that a firm would be more efficient as a, as a worker co-op, then you could just buy it, make it a worker co-op, show that it was more successful, and walk away with your profits. Right. Uh, and, and we can't do that so easily in this world. So there are many people who think they know how many kinds of firms should be run better. And yeah. many of those people have a lot of money and could actually buy the firm if they were allowed to. But why, they can't. Why, why did they, um, the, these are new regulations that suspend? Well, they're not new, they're many decades old. Uh, uh, sure, but it new in the context of after the 70s and 80s, let's say. They, they disallowed this? Well, there, were, there were more of them, there were, there were some before, and then there were some legal changes that kind of made it easier to take over firms, sort of accidentally. And then people tried to take over firms, and then they tried to you know, block those loopholes so they, they could go back to making it hard. But why, why was this regulated away if it has advantages? Well, because the existing managers don't like it. Oh, I see. If you're an existing manager of a firm, then you don't want somebody to be able to buy out your firm and fire you. Yeah. Uh, and especially that will make you look bad because it makes you look like they've decided you're not worth it here. So that will limit your opportunities for other jobs if they, if they fire you out of this one. Can I ask you something? What do you think about um, random choice elections where, where people are selected for, say, Congress or their local government, much like jury duty, and they're given training? Sure. Well, as you, as you know, I have a PhD in formal political theory, so I've you know, spent a long time going over all the different variations of institutional you know, <laughs> voting and governance mechanisms, and I have my own proposal for how I would make governance better. I have a, like a, a, a sketch idea of a different form of government. Yes. But uh, with respect to random elections, um, I mean, first of all, a simple way to experiment would be for someone to run for office on that platform. Like someone can run for office and say, if elected to Congress, Congress, what I will do every week is institute a random jury and I will ask them how I should vote on the bills in Congress. Oh, wow. And then that's what I will do. And so we don't necessarily need an institutional change in order to produce this experiment and what would happen if, if we had random juries decide what to do. But apparently if you know, anybody who's thought of running on this platform and has decided against it because they have decided probably correctly that voters wouldn't like it. Yeah. Voters would not support this candidate who, who says, I will just have a random jury every week and that's what we will do. So voters have decided that, nope, I don't, I don't like that. Yeah. But that, you know, that, suggests that it'll be hard to you know institute a policy that requires these random juries yeah. if people don't even want to try it as an experiment uh but you know theoretically there isn't much that's wrong with it per se uh the question is just will people be more reasonable so 
one theory would be that when people vote, they have hardly any influence, so they hardly think anything about it, and therefore uh, they make bad choices. So under that theory, if we randomly picked a small fraction of the population to vote, then suddenly the people we picked would have a much larger influence, and now they'd have a larger incentive to think carefully. Yeah. So under that theory, then it would go better. I think that theory just doesn't work as well as you'd hope because what most people in that jury will do is like talk to their friends and say, what do you think I should do? Yeah. And they would still listen to the pundits and say, what do you think I should do? And so the main thing that's happening in that system and in our current system is that there's this larger conversation and people are sort of deferring to this conversation about what to do. And it's less about their individual vote and more about sort of what happens in that conversation. Um, you know, if people, you know, if you had very few jurors and then they you know, had a really big weight, then you might imagine them like putting a lot more thought into it. But, you know, unless, unless you make a very small number and then they have a really strong influence, I think they're still mostly going to just go read the papers, <laughs> yeah. you know, listen to their favorite pundit, and uh, which won't necessarily go much better. Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't want to take up too much of your time here, so we'll, we'll start winding down. But there is a, a question I wanted to ask about your book, Elephant in the Brain. Yeah. Uh, and it's about uh, talking about how healthcare and if you're um, providing it is, I, I think, I don't want to misrepresent your argument, but that it's largely uh, symbolic in the sense that uh, people who receive better healthcare aren't actually healthier for it. That, that does not seem very intuitive to me. Um, well, so the book, Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, is basically trying to argue for an overall non-intuitive view of the world. Yes, yeah, of course. So the first third of the book <laughs> is trying to set up theoretically why this non-intuitive point of view might be true. And the thing we claim there is actually the standard view among psychologists. That is, in the world of psychology among academics, they look at our book and they say, you're just repeating the standard thing everybody believes. There's nothing new in the first third of your book. And then the last two thirds of the book, we're applying that to 10 different areas of life and saying they give you radically different implications about those areas of life. And that's not something psychologists do or care about. Uh, but we, you know, I'm a social scientist and I'm saying in these areas of life that I've studied, knowing this one thing that we say in the first third of the book is important to helping you understand all these different areas of life. So the thing we say in the first third of the book is that people are wrong about their motives. <laughs> In a lot of areas when they say, this is why I do something, that's just not why they do it. It's why they think they do it. And it makes sense to say that because it looks good to other people, but it's not actually why they do that. And so we go through conversation and body language and charity and consumption and school and church and politics and medicine. And uh, in each of these areas, we say, the thing you would say about why you do this isn't why you actually do it. And that helps us understand a lot of the puzzles because this theory you have about why you do it just doesn't make sense of a lot of things. And so similarly in medicine, I'd say, well, gee, why do you, why do you consume medicine? And your answer is gonna be, well, to get well. Yeah. And of course it intuitively makes sense to you. You think, hey, sometimes I can get sick, but these people know things about how to get well, but they're expensive. So I need some insurance to cover it. And I need some regulation to help figure out which one of them are good. But hey, when I get sick, I go to them and then they make me well. That's my theory of medicine, right? That's everyone's theory of medicine. And we say, it's not true. So the way we say that is first we say, well, look, your theory is puzzling because here's a bunch of facts that don't fit your theories. 
And then we're going to say, well, here's a better theory that fits the pattern. And one of the key facts we're going to tell you about medicine is there's very little, if not zero, correlation between people in places who get more medicine and people in places that are healthier. Mm. Right off the bat, that should, that should be a surprise to you, you used to say, but, 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 because you were going to get medicine to get healthier. And we're telling you, yeah, but on average, people who get more medicine are not healthier. It's not just true in geographic correlations. It's true in randomized experiments. So randomized experiments, we give some people a free blank check and we can say, go get all the medicine you want. And other people, we say, no, nope, you have to pay for it. And those experiments, of course, the people with the free blank check, they get a lot more, 30, 40% more medicine of all sorts and lots of types. And then we look at how healthy they are and they are not healthier. Yeah. So that's one of many puzzles that we can introduce, that we do introduce in the book to tell you, look, maybe your view about medicine isn't right. And you might think, that, what else could it possibly be about? And we say, it could be about showing that you care. When you get sick, you get stressed, you get scared, People around you want to reassure you that they love you and they're with you and they won't desert you. And so they give you medicine to show you that they love you and they care about you. Yeah. And you get reassured by that. You go, what nice people, they care about me, they love me because they spent all this money on medicine for me. And you like that and it feels comforting and it works from that point of view. It just doesn't necessarily improve your health. I see. Um... Do we have any data on whether or not rich people overall uh, live longer and healthier lives than? Of course they do. Yes. Okay. So rich countries and rich people on average live longer. Yes. Um, and, but that is not connected to the fact that they have uh, yes, better. That's correct. It's not better. connected to the fact they have more, more money to spend on medicine. Uh, what is it connected to? Um, stress is one thing. Okay. So uh, one of the you know, classic descriptions of the life of the poor is that it's a sequence of relatively stressful events to them. Yeah. Car breaks down, they lose their job, they get kicked out of their apartment, uh, they're, you know, et cetera. Somebody steals all their stuff. A sequence of stressful events and stress is health reducing. So um, basically we, we see this among primates, say even chimpanzees or something. Uh, the top leaders of the group have less stress. You can look in their bloodstream and see less stress hormones. And stress hormones are basically the way your body says, I have a crisis right now, turn off all the long-term investments. So when you have stress hormones going through your body, you're basically saying your body, okay, turn off the growth, turn off the immune system, turn off long-term stuff. I need to be hyper aware and attentive right now to what's happening around me ready to jump in a moment's notice because I'm in a crisis and there are stuff, there's stuff going on here I need to pay attention. That's what stress has always done for mammals for a long time, not just humans. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when you suddenly seem to be confronted by a tiger, you're stressed. Stress hormones go way up and suddenly you're ready to jump in a moment's notice, but you've suddenly just turned off all these long-term investment systems. So people who are stressed more often are less healthy because they've been making less of the long-term investments. That makes sense. Um, the, I, I've heard that that sort of like chronic stress is bad for you, but that short bursts of panic, like the, the tiger jumping out, can actually be beneficial. Is, is this something you're- Well, again, it's about the timing. So if you're, if you're just stressed for, for five minutes, yeah. you're the, the, you know, after you stop being stressed, well, all the systems turn on again, right? It's about 
turning off the long-term investment systems. Again, the immune system, the growth system. Chronic stress means you're turning them off a lot yeah. over a long time period. Okay. Um, well, look, I, I don't want to take up any more time. Uh, Robin, I, I, I love talking to you. I love your books. Uh, love your blog, Overcoming Bias. Uh, is there um, anywhere else that, that people can reach you or... or uh, well, I'm sure if you just Google my name, you'll find lots of things about me. But okay. <laughs> uh, happy to talk again. And absolutely, uh, yeah. Have a nice rest of your day. Alrighty, you too. Thanks again. Thank you to Robin Hansen, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.